0: Paul Tournier was a brilliant thinker and writer, an influential Christian therapist during his time. Doctors from all over the world traveled to his home in Switzerland to learn from him. He once wrote, It's a little embarrassing for my students to come and study my techniques, he said with quotation marks. They always go away disappointed. Because all I do is accept people. All I do is accept people. That's what James is talking about at at its root here. Accepting people. Accepting is not the same as approving or, or condoning or even tolerating bad behavior. Acceptance is an act of the heart by which we recognize that despite someone's behavior, he or she has value in God's sight. And we honor that. But this can be a hard thing to do. And the early church found that out. So James, a leader of the church in Jerusalem and its scattered offshoots, takes time to address this important issue. James seems to be expanding in the last couple of verses of the previous chapter where, where he mentions true religion and also a warning not to get polluted with the ways of the world. And that idea of world, that that word comes up several times in the book of James, and he has a kind of a specific meaning. The world is that fallen world system that runs contrary to the ways of God and his kingdom. As his brother Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly in the Beatitudes, Christ reverses our status in the world. We live in an upside-down kingdom where the servant is is the main unit of the kingdom and that's who we are to be serving all others as jesus did so favoritism and its mirror opposite prejudice is a common way that the church could slide into that worldliness the world loves to honor rich and People and people with good images and neglect the poor and people with bad images, and and the church could easily fall into that trap. And so, James gives the church of his day and ours some principles for combating that. He begins with a principle and a real life illustration. He first says in verse 1 My brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord, glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. So, James kind of starts with a little name dropping the name and title of his brother, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And given that relationship that they're actually family, you might expect James to do this a lot, but he doesn't. This is only the second time here uh, that he does that. Why does he do it here? Why does he call attention to Jesus? Quite likely, I think, to remind us of Jesus' principles, which he shared in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' practice, seen in the way he dealt with outcasts, And then Jesus' call for us to follow him by living more like him. He says, remember who you are. Remember what Jesus taught. And then he says, as believers in that Jesus who taught that way, who lived that way, and who called us to follow that way, favoritism is out. It's inconsistent with our Christian faith. Now, in the Greek, favoritism uh, literally means to receive by one's face. To receive by one's face, that's, a, that's the title of the sermon, face or grace. That is to accept a person based on their outward appearance or image. We can easily be fooled by a put-on image. In fact, Jesus talks a lot about that. We read it earlier, where, where he talks about some of the Pharisees as hypocrites. Now we have a the hypocrite is a loaded term for us today, but in, in uh, first century. Uh, in the first century in the Greek, it simply means actor. It's just an actor. Denzel Washington's a hypocrite. Tom Cruise is a hypocrite. Some of them in more ways than one, perhaps. But that's all it meant, was an actor. But actors in those days wore masks. They weren't into method acting and all the acting they do today. They just put masks on to portray who they were, but they were someone different behind the mask. And to be a hypocrite then, to be an actor, was to be wearing a mask but being someone else behind the mask. And and it's easy to be fooled by such a put-on image. It's also easy to wrongly favor someone, usually in comparison with another person, by taking them at face value, their image, their appearance. And so... Then James goes on to illustrate this. He said, let me get you a hypothetical situation, although I suspect it's one he was hearing about in some of his churches. He says, suppose a man comes in your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in. If you show attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor, you stand there or or sit on the floor by my seat by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The setting is quite likely a synagogue. Because that's what the word is that he uses. Suppose a man comes into your synagogue. It's actually the Greek word synagogue. It can mean meeting. Now it could also be stretched to, to talk about their church, but what you may not know is that early Jewish Christians often worshipped in the synagogues uh, well into, in, in some communities as, as uh, late as the 4th century. They were still worshipping on the Sabbath and with their Jewish brothers and sisters in the synagogue, and then going on Sunday into their house churches and worshipping with the church. And we know this because there was a, a bishop that complained in the 4th century that, that uh the, on, on Sunday, when he's leading a service uh, in a house church, everyone's talking about the rabbi's sermon the day before. So it's possible that this is happening in the synagogue. It's also possible that it's all happening in the church. But in, in the ancient Near East, it was customary for people of great wealth to wear jewel-studded clothing of fine silk, which they announced, by which they announced that they were powerful, influential people. It's kind of like the, the Pharisees, as Jesus says, wearing their particular robes with the long tassels. It was the same sort of thing. The, us- the usher then places this rich person that he encounters in the chief seats. Now, where were the chief seats or the most important seats? They were the ones closest to the pulpit. Oh, my, how things have changed. <laughs> actually, in the synagogue, they were the choir loft because it was a theater and around and the people would, would actually, the, the, the Pharisees and the, the elders, the rulers, would actually be able to look at the people and how they're behaving, how well they're listening to the sermon. Those are the chief seats. But James says, Putting someone there just because of his image is a sin. Favoritism is a sin. But of course, there's the flip side of that. In this illustration, we see that the mirror opposite of favoritism is prejudice. The other man is shown the floor in the back of the synagogue or, or, or uh, just kind of crowded out of the whole worship setting. Prejudice is what James is talking about, prejudging. That is, forming an opinion of someone without knowing all the facts. Forming an opinion of someone without knowing all the facts. Once we start doing that, we're well on our way to saying, well, my mind is made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. We all have prejudices that we need to combat especially keeping them out of our attitudes and actions. So how do we do that? Well, James goes on, verses 5 through 7, turning to God's character, the character of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. True believers in Christ seek to be Christ-like, to grow in His image. So what does that look like? Well, he says in those verses, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised to those who love Him? But you've dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you into court? Are they not the ones blaspheming the whole noble name of him to whom you belong? He's going to talk about that more in length in chapter 5. But what we see here is really talking about relationship with wealth and, and how God sees us versus and how we should see others versus how our world sees us. And it starts by... James starts, in essence, by saying, for God, it's not about human wealth. He doesn't look and see how wealthy you are or what kind of image you have and, and, and show you special favor. God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, you might become rich. The Old Testament often speaks of God providing for the poor. God shows no favoritism. He's not not swayed by human wealth or power or fame or charisma. He's not swayed by face, by image. And in fact, James reminds his readers, you know, these wealthy that you're favoring, they're the ones that are persecuting you, oppressing you, blaspheming Christ's name. So if he doesn't judge by face, if his standard isn't human wealth, then what is it? James goes on, it's spiritual wealth. God does not judge by face, but by grace. Not by face, but by grace. He's far more concerned about those who are rich in faith, James says, and who by faith have received his grace. Back to some of the words we read earlier in the service. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many influential. Not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God's standard is spiritual wealth. And then along with that spiritual wealth comes a promise of eternal wealth. A reward awaits those who have this spiritual wealth rather than human wealth. They will inherit the kingdom. I said earlier that James is probably uh, spending a lot of time uh, re- responding to and using the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus to, bring about Christ- to talk about Christian ethics. Well, here's a clear place where he's referring to it. They will inherit the earth. We're reminded of Jesus' words. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Do we receive people by face value or by the grace value that they have in Christ because of Christ working in them? Well, then perhaps answering this, the excuse that some might have been giving, well, I'm just loving my neighbor, right? The Bible tells me to love my neighbor. He just happens to be rich. James says, well, let's, let's turn to the Torah a moment. Let's turn to the law of God. He says, if you really, verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin And are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. So he he speaks of Leviticus 19 verse 18 as the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. When I was a kid, that always puzzled me. If... If uh, what's going on, and I know more, I've known more later, you know, that the rabbis had this thing where they started out and said there's 613 commandments in the Old Testament, and then someone came up with, well, these are the most crucial ones, and then someone narrowed it down even more, and by Jesus' day it had been narrowed down to two love God above all, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is not the first one to say that. Sorry to disappoint you if you thought that, but it's actually been said years before him. That was a very typical way of summarizing the Torah at that point. Love God above all, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you were to narrow it to one, which one would you pick? I would have always picked love God above all. Doesn't that make the most sense? But James says, no, the royal law is love your neighbor as yourself. And you know what? Paul agrees. And John agrees. But only John in in 1 John explains it. He says, because if you claim to love, if you can't love your neighbor or your brother? How can you say that you love God? You've seen your brother, you've seen your neighbor. They're right there in front of you. If you claim to love them but don't, or claim to to uh, be doing what God wants, but don't love your neighbor, don't love your brother, how can you claim to be lovers of God whom you haven't even seen? And so they're all saying. This is where push comes to shove. Ultimately, your love for God is expressed by the way you love your neighbor. So James refers to that, perhaps also because it's part of that commandment of Jesus, love God above all, love your neighbor as yourself. Or maybe it's just a reference to the entire Torah, which is summarized by this command. We'll talk about it a little bit more this evening, but but I've mentioned it before, oftentimes the Jews would take one little snippet of the Old Testament intending to connote the entire passage, the whole context. And we'll see how that happens in Mark this evening. But here he may just be quoting one part of the law, the 613 commandments the Jews identified, to to help us remember all of the law. And that's borne out by the following verses that deal with different commands which are part of the law. He goes on and says... Well, okay, you could, com- you could commit murder, but not commit adultery, but you're still a lawbreaker, even though you kept one out of two. And he seems to be referencing the idea that any partiality as well, in failing to love your neighbor, breaks that royal law and makes them lawbreakers. In other words, James is saying you can't just choose which laws you want to keep and ignore the rest. We have a tendency to do that, I think. And and certainly, as James says, favoritism or prejudice breaks the law as much as adultery or murder. Now, we have this tendency to shrug off certain sins and to stigmatize others, right? And so we might shrug off certain sins like prejudice. Oh, that's just human nature. But James reminds us that God takes those things seriously, and of all places, there is no room for it in the church. There is no room for it in the church. And then he concludes by giving us a perspective on the law and on how God views us and therefore how we ought to view others. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now first, James speaks of the law giving freedom and that's not our typical way we think of laws. But he's referring to The higher law, God's law, the Torah, or God's good teaching about how to live life. And as Jesus summarized it by the word love, one word in two directions, God above all, our neighbors as ourselves, we're reminded that the law is not a bunch of constricting rules. It's a teaching that frees us to love God and neighbor. Under the law, however, we've all failed miserably. But God shows us mercy. By his grace, he gave Christ to take our punishment and be our obedience for us. So God sees us not by face, but through the eyes of grace. God sees us not through faith, but through the eyes of grace. And not surprisingly, then, we are called to look at other people the same way. We do so not to keep the law, but to show gratitude for God's grace to us. Out of gratitude, we show mercy. We begin to accept people not by face, but by grace, for mercy triumphs over judgment. Charles Swindoll writes, As the old adage goes, birds of a feather flock together. How true that is, even in our churches. I'm tempted to say, especially in our churches, We have large churches, small churches, downtown churches, suburban churches, inner city churches, young churches, old churches, formal churches, informal churches, all of them composed of people who look the same, think the same, talk the same, and act the same. Oh, and they often mistrust, dislike, or alienate the others on the outside of their culture. Why has it been so difficult for Christians to take James' word about partiality and prejudice seriously? We're okay with loving our neighbors as long as we get to pick the neighborhood. But James' words concerning prejudice and partiality should challenge our attitudes and change our actions. In essence, James says, let Scripture be your standard, let love be your law, let mercy or grace be your message. Acceptance is at its heart an act of the heart, In, in in which we recognize that despite someone's behavior or how much money or possessions they have or their appearances, he or she has value in God's sight. And we honor that. But as James seems to indicate, this can be a hard thing to do. Now, there are many ways to communicate acceptance to people, one of them is to listen with patience. And compassion to receive them with love in the name of Jesus. Another is to refrain from mental condemnation and judgments, from constantly evaluating and analyzing who they are, their motives, what they look like, all those things that keep us from actually loving them. We must take captive those thoughts of condemnation toward others and submit them to God. And as we draw near to him, ask him to love through us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And we pray that we might be not only hearers, but also doers of that word. That we might be those who look at the grace that you have shown us and seek to live out that grace in our relationships with others. Even those that maybe have an image or look or act differently than than we like because we know that we were nothing before you found us and you accepted us despite of who we are by your grace. Help us to be graceful people as well. For Jesus' sake, amen.